This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Christopher Porco? In 2004, Peter and Joan Porco lived in Del Mar, New York, which is about 15 minutes west of Albany. The couple had been married since 1974. 52-year-old Peter worked as an attorney and his 54-year-old wife as a speech therapist. The couple had two sons, 23-year-old Jonathan, who served in the Navy, and 21-year-old Christopher, who was a college student at the University of Rochester. People who knew the family thought of them as typical. They seemed happy and normal, but not everything was going well. Peter and Joan had concerns about Christopher's behavior. A few examples. Christopher had stolen two laptops from his parents in November of 2002 by staging a burglary. He did the same thing in July of 2003 when he took one laptop from his parents' house. Posing as his brother Jonathan, Christopher sold items on eBay. Christopher had a great deal of debt and forged his father's signature to get a car loan and a $31,000 loan to pay for college. And Christopher was failing out of college. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. At about 10.30 p.m. on November 14, 2004, Christopher climbed in his yellow Jeep Wrangler and departed from the University of Rochester campus. He drove about three and a half hours to his parents' house, arriving just after 2 a.m., now on November 15. He parked his Jeep in the driveway. Christopher used a key that was hidden in a flower pot to gain entry into the house. At 2.14 a.m., he used a master code to disable the alarm. Later, he smashed the keypad, but this did not destroy evidence that the master code had been used. Christopher made his way to the garage and retrieved an axe. He entered the master bedroom where his parents were sleeping. Using the axe, Christopher attacked Peter by striking him in the head and chest multiple times. He then attacked Joan using the same method. He placed the axe at the foot of the bed and left the bedroom. At 4.54 a.m., Christopher cut the phone lines in the backyard. He then drove back to Rochester, arriving just after 8.30 a.m. What Christopher did not know was that both his father and mother were still alive. Not long after Christopher left, Peter climbed out of bed and walked into the bathroom. He then walked downstairs and entered the kitchen. He walked around aimlessly there for a few minutes. It appears as though he tried to empty the dishwasher and may have been preparing his lunch for the day. It's almost like he was engaging in his regular morning routine. At one point, Peter opened the front door. Eventually, Peter collapsed at the bottom of the stairs and died. When he failed to show up for work, a court officer was sent to his house. The officer called 911 after discovering Peter's body. When the police arrived at the house, they found that Peter was dead, but that Joan was alive in her bed. She was severely injured and could not talk. At this point, the police had already developed this theory that someone close to Peter and Joan had attacked them. There was no forced entry into the house, and nothing was stolen. 
a police officer asked Joan if a family member did this to her. She nodded yes. He asked her if Jonathan was responsible. She shook her head no. He then asked her if Christopher was the attacker. Joan nodded yes. Joan was taken to the hospital. She survived but sustained many permanent injuries like losing an eye and part of her skull, as well as having severe disfigurement to her face. She could not remember who attacked her, and she did not remember implicating her son to the police on the morning after the attack. The police interviewed Christopher for six hours at the police station. He denied being involved in the attack. He said that he was in a dormitory lounge all night at the University of Rochester, which is about 231 miles away. This didn't make the police any less suspicious. Christopher's alibi did not check out. Surveillance video captured his vehicle both leaving and returning to the university campus. And, of course, his mother had initially indicated he was the killer. Almost a year later, on November 4, 2005, Christopher was arrested and charged with murder and attempted murder. Christopher's trial started on June 27, 2006. The jury started deliberating on August 10 and returned their verdict in less than six hours. They found Christopher guilty of second-degree murder and of second-degree attempted murder. Members of the jury would later say that the timeline was convincing and Christopher's alibi was not. They said the fact that Joan initially implicated Christopher did not play a role in their verdict. They completely disregarded that event, believing that Joan did not know what she was doing. In December, Christopher was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. He is eligible for parole in December of 2052, when he would be around 79 years old. Christopher appealed his case a few times, but was not successful. A made-for-TV movie came out in 2013 on Lifetime, titled Romeo Killer, The Chris Porco Story. Christopher filed a lawsuit to stop the movie from being released. He wanted to have editorial control over the movie. He had an initial victory in his lawsuit. Apparently, the judge wanted to get in on the homicide action by murdering the First Amendment, but on appeal, Christopher lost, as he should have in the first place. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. 
and I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Now moving to my analysis. Was Christopher Porco actually guilty of murder? Many people, including his mother and a number of his friends, believe that he is innocent. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Christopher is guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. Christopher's mother initially indicated to the police that he was responsible. He routinely lied to his friends at college. Christopher had stolen items from his parents and sold them on eBay. He forged his father's signature to get money. He lied to his parents, telling them that the university was paying for his tuition because a professor had lost one of his final exams. Christopher forged transcripts from a community college to be admitted to the University of Rochester. Not long before the murder, Peter was quite upset with Christopher because of his deceptive behavior. Christopher's alibi did not make sense or check out. He said that he moved his vehicle off campus, wandered around for a bit, then went to a dormitory lounge to go to sleep. Why didn't he go to his room to sleep? No one saw Christopher on the campus. None of his friends remember him being in the dormitory lounge on the night of November 14 and 15. There was a great deal of evidence suggesting that Christopher had driven his yellow Jeep from Rochester to Del Mar and back to Rochester. Video showed his Jeep leaving campus at 10.30 p.m. Six minutes later, it's captured heading east. At 10.45 p.m., he picked up a toll ticket for the New York Thruway. A toll collector testified that he may have seen the Jeep at 1.51 a.m. at a toll booth which was nine miles away from the Porco family residence. At 4 a.m., a neighbor who was driving to work noticed Christopher's Jeep in the driveway of the Porco family house. At 5.12 a.m., his Jeep entered the New York Thruway, heading back toward Rochester, and at 8.30 a.m., video captured the Jeep headed toward the college. None of the video captured the license plate, but decals and a mud stain matching his vehicle were visible. Christopher knew the master code for the alarm, where the house key was hidden, and was aware of the axe in the garage. Whoever entered the house was intent on killing Peter and Joan. Drawers were pulled out as if somebody was looking for something, but nothing was stolen, as if the assailant was trying to make it look like the intent was burglary. Now moving to the exculpatory factors. Christopher's mother said she did not remember what happened. She was positive that Christopher was innocent. She testified on his behalf during the trial. Joan was severely injured in the attack and any gestures she made to the police could not be considered reliable. No physical evidence tied Christopher to the crime scene. There was no blood, no DNA, and no fingerprints anywhere in the house or in Christopher's vehicle. How could he attack two people with an axe and not get any blood on himself or in his Jeep? It's worth noting that Christopher worked in a veterinary office and people there said he was very good at cleaning up blood. One fingerprint was found near where the phone line was cut. It did not match Christopher. It is possible that after Peter was injured, he entered the master code into the alarm, although this is unlikely 
and it doesn't make sense that he would smash the keypad afterward. It is also possible that he put the key in the front door lock. Weeks before the attack, Joan reported seeing a stranger in the driveway. When considering the evidence in this case, do I think that Christopher was guilty of murder and attempted murder? Yes, I believe he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and guilty in reality. Here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. Christopher appears to have characteristics of narcissism and psychopathy. As far as the narcissism, he told members of his fraternity that he was from a rich family and had access to a lot of their money. He said that his grandmother was a wealthy landowner in Connecticut, his parents owned a lodge in Vermont, and they had a house in Aruba. None of those statements were true. Christopher used to show off his supposed wealth by paying for parties at the fraternity, but of course he was in a great deal of debt. As far as the psychopathy, prior to being killed, Peter told a co-worker that his son was a sociopath. Christopher was willing to attack his parents simply to cover his lies. It's almost like the lives of his parents did not matter at all to Christopher. He did not even view them as human beings, rather just as obstacles to him getting what he wanted. After the attack, Christopher showed no remorse. Item number two, Christopher's mother still believes that he is innocent and she regularly visits him in prison. She's not willing or able to view him as the person who attacked her. Members of the jury hope that someday Christopher will be honest with his mother, but I don't think that's going to happen. I wonder what Christopher is thinking when his mother visits him in prison. I imagine that her presence there is a reminder of Christopher's failure to kill her, not only because she's physically visiting him, but also due to her highly visible injuries. I doubt that Christopher feels guilty or ashamed, but rather angry at himself for not finishing the job. He probably wonders why he didn't check to make sure that his parents were dead. At the same time, Christopher may take some comfort in the visits. He might gain pleasure in the fact that he was able to attack his mother so viciously, yet she still believes him. She is both a testament to his failure and a testament to his success as a master manipulator. Now moving to the final item, item number three. One of the most disturbing and unusual elements of this case was Peter's behavior after being attacked by his son. He seemingly went into some type of autopilot mode and attempted to execute his morning routine. He had sustained severe head trauma and was not aware of his injuries or what he was doing. This automatic behavior parallels the relational processes which are evident in this case. Peter needed to believe that Christopher could be redeemed. In his last email to Christopher, Peter said that he paid for his tuition and Peter appeared optimistic. He said this even after telling a coworker that Christopher was a sociopath. At some level, Peter rationally understood that Christopher was a dangerous criminal, but emotionally, he was not ready to accept the truth. Joan had her own version of autopilot. Prior to the attack, she told Christopher how his behavior was causing Peter to have a nervous breakdown. Rationally, she understood that Christopher's behavior was a problem and she was displeased with him. Yet, after the attack, she believed that her son was innocent. Like so many other cases involving offenders with narcissistic and psychopathic behavior, Christopher took advantage of people who believed in his goodness despite the evidence. 
The trust that parents have for a child is profound and sometimes adopts a persistent trajectory, which no amount of frightening behavior can disrupt. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs>